I'm Emma Louise Coffey, and you're welcome to The Dairy Edge, the Chagas Dairy Podcast. We're bringing you the latest information, insights, and opinion to improve dairy farm performance. On this week's show, we're focusing on labour efficiency and grassland management. I'll be speaking to Kieran Kelleher from Curtin's Research Farm and Pat Clark from Chagas Athenry. But first, I caught up with John Maher, campaign manager of Grass 10, to hear about the initiative. The background to Grass 10 campaign is to try and improve the level of grass grown on farm and the level of grass eaten by the animals on farm. So, look, we know that the average level of grass um, grown on farm from the National Farm Survey in Chagas is about 10 tonnes. However, we know the best farms, um, including research farms, can grow above 16 tonnes. So the reality is then we're trying to get more farmers up to that level. So the, the background then to the, the Grass 10 campaign is we know if we, if we grow 14 tonnes of grass and uh, we will eat about 10 tonnes of that. That's why it's called Grass 10. Equally, if we achieve 10 grazings um, per paddock in the year, we'll do the, the same figures. So for some, it's about measurement of grass and, you, you know, talking about 14 tonnes of grass grown, 10 tonnes utilised, which is about 80% utilisation rate. For others who don't measure grass, then it, it, it's, it's easy to think about grazing rotations and, and achieving 10 grazing uh, rotations per paddock per year is a good way of achieving the same target. Following on from that, John, I, I see that you have principles for the Grass 10 campaign. So the first principle mentioned is soil fertility. Can you go through the background to this? Yeah. Look, there's about four pieces to the jigsaw, uh, Emma. There is soil fertility, there's receding, there's grazing management, and there's grazing infrastructure. So we'll start with the basics, which is the growth of grass plants starts below the surface of the soil, and that's why we focus on soil fertility. So these things we're talking about here then are the, the lime requirement of the soil, uh, the pea status of the soil, and the K status of the soil. And we have seen from results from soil samples in Ireland that soil fertility is quite low on farms. Could you give us an, an input in terms of what the levels are, what we're seeing on farms in terms of soil fertility? Yeah, correct, correct Emma. Yeah, um, unfortunately, soil fertility is not in a good place and has been deteriorating since 1992 or the early 90s. And we have to address that because we're going to carry more cows, we're trying to grow more grass, we're trying to produce more milk sauce, so this doesn't come for free. So we need to we need to uh, fix the soil fertility so that our, our grass will grow better and our ryegrass plants will survive and when the weather turns bad that our, our ryegrass pastures will uh, recover. So the basics of that start with lime because lime affects the availability of the other nutrients like P, K, nitrogen, sulphur. So if we don't fix lime first, um, then we, we will affect the others. So the stats of the country are not great, you're right. Two thirds of the soils in the country are deficient in lime. So we have to address that straight away. And then we work on the P and K story. Um, unfortunately, about two thirds of our soils are index one or two, which is not good for ryegrass. They need to be three and four. So, look very quickly. Two thirds of the soil uh, are deficient. Uh, soils are deficient in lime, and two thirds are deficient in peas and K's. We need to address that. So, fertilizer and slurry strategy are a big part of that. And then moving on to grazing management. Grazing management is at a low level on farms at the moment. What can we do to improve this on farm? Yeah, the soil fertility story is relatively easily fixed. If we put out the slurry and the peas and Ks, right, um, in the right quantities and at the right time, we, we get a great response. So, for example, like some people are trying to use low um, P and K compound products. They're not suitable for where the industry is at. We need to move into products like 18, 6, 12, 0, 7, 30, 10, 10, 20, products like that, Murata Potash. 
So once we get that piece fixed, then we move on to the grazing management piece, right? And this is the this is the piece that will actually grow more grass for you, but also allow you to eat this grass. And really, this is about the ten grazing rotations. And if we can get ten grazing rotations in in the year, we will graze the right grass on average. And the game is largely won and lost. But what happens between the first week or, or the middle of April to middle of August? There's 120 days. That's uh, um, six 20-day uh, rotations. That If we do that, that's where the game is won and lost in terms of grazing rotations. So the six there, right, we have one at the start of the year um, between, you know, turn out to cows to the middle of April. Then from the middle of August to the middle of uh, September is another. Middle of September to middle of October is, is number nine. And then obviously number 10 is middle October to middle of November if we get there. But most people tend to struggle between the middle of April and middle of August when grass growth is at its maximum. And it's all about getting the grass grazed at the right stage. And this is the tree-leaf phase of grass. People know this, but they forget. So, after you graze the grass plant, seven days later, the first leaf appears. Another seven days later, the second leaf appears. And the third leaf appears on day 20. So, every seven days, a leaf appears. When the fourth leaf appears, the first one dies. So, therefore, the cows are eating um, dead material. And when the fourth leaf appears, we get more stem. So, the animals don't graze as well and perform poorer. So, it's really about that tree-leaf stage of the ryegrass plant. And that's why we talk about 20-day rotations between middle of April to middle of August. In terms of in infrastructure, John, what infrastructure can farmers put in place to increase grass utilisation? Yeah, most farmers do a reasonable job in infrastructure, like in terms of water, roadways, uh, you know, paddock fencing. However, at the shoulders of the year, when things become difficult in terms of weather, this is where this really comes into its own. And you generally you'll see reasonable infrastructure around the parlour, but as we move further and further out into the extremities of the farm, this is where things become a little bit more difficult because the roadways are inadequate or their poor surface or the paddock shape is wrong. And, you know, you're asking the cows to graze that part of the farm at the start of the year and at the end of the year yet the infrastructure is not great so infrastructure being put in place allows you graze the grass that you grow and that's why we put we put focus on then the, you know the use of uh, of strip wires the use of spur roadways in, in paddocks to allow cows get to grass at times when grazing conditions are difficult but at the same time get grass into diet because that's where the high costs are so the more grass we can put in by having better grazing infrastructure in place the lower the cost of production we will have. Simply put, grass is three times cheaper than silage, five times cheaper than meal. So if we put the uh, good grazing infrastructure in place, therefore we can get this grass and lower costs. Just to emphasise that, you said that grass is three times cheaper than silage yes. and five times cheaper than concentrate to feed. Very interesting. And finally, looking at receding, what sort of proportions of the farm would you be looking to recede each year? Well, the people who are on, t on top of the game in terms of receding and when you do the economic analysis and all that, you know, receding is not cheap. It's 700 euros a hectare. But 10% of the farm um, per year is what the, the, the best guys uh, target. And I think that's good looking at, looking at the progress we have in varieties. However, I will say to you, it's the icing on the cake. The first piece to fix is salt fertility. There's no point in seven, spending 700 euros per hectare um, on receding if the soil fertility is compromised because the ryegrass plant won't survive if the lime status is not met or the pea status is very, very low. So, soil fertility starts first, then the grazing infrastructure is put in place, you put in your grazing management and the receding is the, is the last piece of the story for me. That gives you the competitive advantage when you've all the other pieces right. But if you can't grow the grass or can't eat the grass, then spending money on receding really is questionable when money should be spent on infrastructure or on um, uh, soil fertility first. 
And finally, John, there's a lot of farmers starting out on their grassland journey in terms of improving grass measurement, improving soil fertility and their grazing infrastructure. What is the first step that you could give these farmers in terms of advice on starting their grassland journey? Yeah, the grass journey is a long uh, journey, but a very rewarding one. But it takes time to master it all. So, like everything in life, where you can get help and mentorship, this is what um, matters for me in terms of grass. Unfortunately, grass changes every week, every season, every month, every year. So, you know, you're you're dealing with that variability. And you have to manage all those different things, whether it's soil fertility, whether it's grazing management, whether it's improving grazing infrastructure. And like, you know, um, you know, there's a saying there, I get by with a little help from my friends. And that's what you need in terms of grass. Someone that will, uh, or people, so it can be a discussion group, it can be a neighbour, it can be someone from Chagas, it can be anybody who has knowledge of grass. And then, you you know, you get them to share that knowledge with you. So you can work in groups of twos, threes, fours, tens, whatever it is. But find somebody who has this knowledge, work with them. Um, people who do this will uh, gain great reward, both the mentor and the person learning because it's sharing of information because grass changes uh, so often and it's so variable in terms of if it's 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 production um, then you need this help to manage it properly. John, what are your top three tips for grazing management in spring? Okay, I think the, the, the three tips are um, uh, for the first rotation uh, to me are relatively simple. The, the first one is that you put a plan in place. And that's the spring rotation planner, right? And it can it can vary from different parts of the country in soil type. But the idea is that it's 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 calendar based and it's date based and it's relatively easily followed, right? So it allows you to uh, have grass in the diet of the, of the of the cow uh, as as often as the cow can graze. At the same time, doesn't uh, enable you to go too fast or doesn't enable you to go too slow. So it gives you a kind of a a, a balance in terms of achieving grazing at the same time getting grass and diet of the dairy cow. For the vast majority of people who farm on reasonable land, is that target is roughly to have 30% of the farm grazed by the 1st of March, about two-thirds of the farm grazed by Paddy's Day and finish their first grazing rotation somewhere in early April. For those on heavier land, you'll modify that I, and I accept that. And, you know, I'll go to more extreme forms of heavier land. It it, it could be as simple as this, by ha- having roughly, you know, um, 30% of the farm grazed by the middle of March, another 30% by the f- 1st of April, so you have 60% grazed by the 1st of April, and finish the first round somewhere around the middle of April. So we've gone from the dry land to the extreme. A lot of people will be in between, but doing that process of the 45 to 60, 70 day rotation, whatever that is for you, allows you to get a planned approach in terms of finishing the first round on time, and getting grass into the cow, uh, cow's diet as often as possible. So just to recap on that, make a plan for the spring. Try and get as much grass into the cows as possible, where conditions allow. Graze 30% by the 1st of March, two-thirds by St. Patrick's Day, and finish your first round by early April. Thank you, John. No problem. Thank you. Now let's hear from the farmers. Kieran Kelleher from Curtin's Research Farm fills us in on how he's preparing for the spring. This week we have been preparing the calving boxes and uh, also the single calf pins and the group pins have disinfected them and they're also bedded down out this stage. And And then in terms of the cows, what way have you them housed in preparation for calving? They're housed uh, according to calving date nearest to the calving box so the First, there's 21 in each shed, so there's seven sheds in total there. So they come down as according to their their dates, down to, closer to the cabin pin. 
And in terms of supplies, what have you um, ordered and what have you ready in the yard for the upcoming calving season? Uh, we have two pellets of um, milk replacer due in there now next week. So we have a couple of bags just in case we would need them at the weekend. But I would imagine we shouldn't have any cows calving this weekend. So that should carry. Hopefully next week we'll be prepared. And you have the, the tags and the, disin- the navel disinfectant ready. Yeah, all that's ready to go now and all this all. And we've all the disinfectants in place for the foot bats. And, and Kieran, you mentioned you have some calcium boluses ordered for the spring. Uh, what are these for? They're for the older stock in the yard. The, anything that was prone to come down last year will get a bolus immediately after calving. So just to prevent that happening again. And in terms of the number of cows, how many cows have you calving in curtains this spring? Uh, there's 150 calving there in total and there's 86% of the cows calving the first six weeks. Of okay, so that's working out at about 130 cows yeah, 130 calving cows. in the first six weeks. So you'll be very busy between now and Patrick's Day. Yeah, we'll be kept going all right. So. Any of the other jobs you're doing on the farm uh, prior to the calving workload? Yeah, in the next uh, maybe seven to ten days we're hoping to get out the slurry and fertiliser uh, weather permitting just before we're we need hands and dick once we start calving, as you can see there by the calving rate, we're going to be fairly busy, so let's try and get that done next week. Thank you, Kieran. We'll be catching up again on the performance at Curtin's Farm in the next month. I right, thank you. Finally, on this week's show, Pat Clark from Chagas Athenry talks us through labour-saving tips on our farms this spring, starting with the average number of hours worked per week. I thought they would have shown that dairy farmers in springtime are working an average of 72 hours per week uh, in the spring period. That's over 10 hours per day uh, compared to an average of 62 hours over the whole year. That probably doesn't tell the full story, though, because that 72 hours is generally spread over the 24-hour period as people or farmers are working late, getting up early to uh, assist with cows during the calving period. And if you talk about that being the average, Pat, in terms of 72 hours, you know, there are people working less than that and more than that. You know, what is the max you would have heard of uh, of of hours worked uh, per week? Absolutely. There would be some people who would be working 80 to 90 days in springtime, uh, which is an enormous amount of working hours uh, during the week. And if, if if you consider the workload there, Pat, around, you know, the average of 72 hours, is it necessary for farmers to be working that much or can they, you know... Select tasks that somebody else can complete. Yeah, so where some of the more efficient farmers are obviously planning and they're looking at their spring workload not being sustainable, so therefore they have to take away some of the work from themselves. So one of the obvious choices farmers have made over the last couple of years is to use contractors where appropriate during that period. For example, to get the sorry spread by contractor, get the cert spread by contractor. An obvious advantage there is that they're not doing the work the work themselves, but also contractors will tend to do it in a quicker time. One of the speakers at the dairy conf- at the Irish Grassland Association conference this week said that it was taking him two days um, to spread the fertilizer during the February period. When the contractor came in, it took a half a day because the contractor had more appropriate sized machinery for that task. The other area then that people look at reducing their workload during that time is that they realise that they need additional help. But again, now is the time to be looking at an advance of the busy period to see, first of all, 
how much help do they need and secondly who is available out there and what particular skills they have got for some people it's a full-time employee that's required but for others some relief staff coming in maybe doing some milking maybe giving a hand with calf rearing maybe it's somebody that can do some weekend work that can really be the help that will allow farmers to get over this busy period and you know when we're when we're talking about um that workload um and la- and you know trying to become more labor efficient you know we can probably um break down the workload in the spring into different areas it calving uh, milking calf rearing and grass have you any tips in terms of what farmers can do in the next month or two to reduce the workload around calving yeah so the first one calving i think you could nearly look at that in two sides one would be the actual calving and secondly would be the whole movement of cows calves and facilities so if we take calving lots of people are putting great emphasis now on getting cow body condition correct so cows in poor condition or over-conditioned cows will have more difficult calvings, more assistance required and more, and therefore more labour. So get cow condition right. There still is time, you know, during late January into February to keep cow condition right. And we're talking, Recently, just, just to interrupt you there, Pat, but th- we're talking about a target of 3.25 when we talk about uh, the correct body condition score. We are, yeah. And it's surprisingly for people, most people will know what a cow should be uh, when she calves down. So it's a matter of making sure that if you have 10 cows or fat cows, that you would just do the, the 3.25 or the ideal cow for calving. The other couple of issues around calving are, one is the, the use of sires that was used. Obviously, that's too late for this season, but next year's breeding season isn't too far away. Use easy calving bulls, particularly in the second half of the breeding season. And the third one is animal health. Have a, a correct animal health procedure in place and tricor minerals. So put big emphasis on getting the cow right at calving time. The second part of calving then is the actual facilities and the movement of stock around calving. Look at your calving area. Is it the appropriate size? Is it easy to feed animals in it? Is it easy to separate animals in it? Is it easy to clean it out? And many farmers have made adjustments to make life easier in, in that regard by maybe creating an extra door, an extra passageway, maybe putting in a self-feed uh, silage uh, place for the calving area and then looking at movement of stock can you move cows pretty securely and safely from their main cubicle house or houses to the calving area and can you move calves pretty easily from the calving area to their calf accommodation and anything that will simplify the process of calving and reduce the amount of time you're moving animals is a big help during that period. In terms of then when we look at milking and labour efficiency what do you see the efficient farmers doing to reduce labour around the milking process in the spring? Uh, yeah, milking, milking on a farm typically takes up a third of the working year, so it is a big process. Around calving time, uh, some of the things that the most efficient farmers are doing, uh, they may be training heifers to the parlour. So that for a number of days during January, they get heifers familiar with the, the feeding, the noise and the movement around the parlour. Um, they may be increasing cow flow around the parlour, both into the parlour and out of the parlour so that cows uh, move much more easily. And the other practice that some farmers have adopted for the first uh, four to six weeks of calving is to milk cows once a day. In terms of then, when we look at the the calf rearing, uh, calf rearing is a very uh, time expensive task on farms and, and and just the general care of calves. Um, have you seen any practices that will reduce uh, the the labour workload around uh, calf rearing? 
One of the practices that pharmacists have adopted uh, quite readily in recent years is getting adequate colostrum into calves. And pharmacists are quite openly say that following the, the, the one, two, three ruling or guideline is that calves will be more healthy by getting this early colostrum and healthy calves mean less work. So getting the calf off the, to the correct start is vital by getting colostrum into that calf early on. So putting a bit of effort and thought about how you're going to do that can pay dividends later on. The other thing with calf rearing is the whole idea is to try and simplify it, is to try and get easy movement of milk um, minimize the number of sheds that you're going to. It's too late, obviously, to build a calf shed at this stage and to be able to to move uh, the milk freely to the cat to the calf houses. Provision of hot water, obviously, near the near the calf feeding area is important as well. Uh, many farmers would, would do that. And um, then once calves become four weeks of age, you could consider once a day feeding a calf. Again, more practitioners have shown that animal performance is quite flat satisfactorily when they're fed once a day from four weeks of age onwards and labour input is reduced. And just in terms of, of the whole um, housing versus getting cows out to grass, um, where conditions allow, are we going to be more labour efficient if we get the cows out rather than housing them? Oh, of course. Cows, uh, once cows start calving, where they can get to grass almost immediately, you cut down on the shed work, you cut down on the indoor work. So have a plan to get cows to grass as quickly as you can. Some farms obviously are restricted because of ground conditions, but quite a lot of farms can get them out. Think about it in advance. Have you got your paddock split with temporary uh, wire? Have you got uh, reels and posts in place in your paddocks? Um, have you got sufficient openings in your paddocks that will allow you to get into a dry bit of ground for a half a day or maybe it's for maybe for three-hour grazings? So when cows are out of the shed, is that it's work removed from the yard. There's less feeding, less cleaning of the sheds. And uh, generally speaking, you're, you're going to, the cows are going to perform better as well. If we look at the overall labour picture, Pat, uh, you presented at the Irish Grasslands Conference and you were saying, you know, the, the average farmer is spending about 47 hours per cow per year in terms of labour input. And then the, the, the top 5% farmers are at about 25 hours. Can you give us an overall picture of what, what type of farmer you were looking at and how many uh, farms were included in your labour study? Yeah, so we worked with uh, some discussion groups and we ended up uh, looking at 70 discussion groups, about a thousand farmers in total. There were typical farmers that were out there that were in discussion groups and we looked at their, their labour input, so who was working on the farm, uh, quantified the hours the farmer put in, family put in and employees put in, and then looked at uh, practices and facilities on those farms as well that might be contributing to labour efficiency or inefficiency. So, you know, the range was, was going from the low 20s up to the mid 40s in terms of hours of work per cow regardless of who was doing, doing those hours and what it was really saying that uh, you know some farms are, are pretty efficient in terms of hours of work but there is a lot of scope for others to reduce the, the input of work per cow. And in terms of um, the herd type were these seasonal calving herds were they a mix um, were they spring or autumn? Uh, there were a mix. So there was spring calving herds, there was autumn calving herds. It, it doesn't really make any difference what system you're in. Once you, if you analyse and you see that there are other people more efficient than you in your system in terms of labour, then it allows you to start asking questions about your own system. 
And when you're identifying, um, you know, how labour efficient or inefficient a farm is, what are the metrics or KPIs that you considered um, as the measure of labour efficiency? Yeah, probably not as easy as uh, we'll say grass utilised per hectare is very clear cut, six feet calving rate is very clear cut. When it comes to labour, it's uh, a little bit more difficult. Three of the metrics that we used, uh, the first thing you've mentioned already, hours of work per cow. So that quantifies how many hours of physical work per cow on the farm. So obviously the lower the hours, the more efficient in terms of work per cow. But sometimes that doesn't tell you what the individual farmer is doing. So then we also looked at the, the number of hours per week that individual farmers were doing. So you could be very efficient in terms of hours per cow, but if you're running yourself into the round, obviously that was going to be a, a there was going to be a sustainability issue there with the person. So there there were two of the metrics we looked at. And another metric we looked at as well is output per labor unit. So in other words, how many kilos of milk solids has been produced for every labor unit of work that's on your farm? So those were three metrics. They're they're interchangeable. They're they're intermixed, but it's very difficult to look at one in isolation. Okay. And when when you looked at the the results of this experiment, I, I know you presented them at the Grassland Conference. But in terms of what are the main differences you see um, between the average and the most efficient farmers within the study? I I'm going to say it's very difficult to answer that. We looked at a lot of different variables. Um, what I would say, though, is that you could look at the, 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 the facilities and practices, you could nearly break them into two. So if you look at the facilities part of it, first of all, efficient farms will tend to have better milking facilities, better grazing infrastructure, uh, better organisation uh, around their facilities. That That is one thing that will show up. But the second thing uh, you would look at is the, the practices. So one can have the facilities in place, but if they don't have the practices, but what I mean by practices, the most efficient guys will have regular milking times, set milking time in the morning, a set milking time in the evening, and the evening milking time will be earlier. So that's a practice rather than a facility. A higher proportion of the, of the efficient guys will be will have three grazings for paddock during the summer. A higher proportion of them will feed calves once a day. A higher proportion of them will practice uh, once a day milking when appropriate, be it spring or be it autumn time. So those are really system changes um, that require the farmer to change. So I would say that if you look at the most efficient farms, yes, they're improving their facilities, but they're also changing the way that they work to make themselves more efficient. Okay, and then based on those results, what was the difference in the number of hours between your average and your top 5% farmer? Well, again, if you look at the hours per cow, the average in discussion groups was 47 for the 1,000 farms that we looked at over a four-year period, and the most efficient were 20 hours per cow. 20 so you really look at yeah. 20, 20 versus 47. Okay, so so over double the amount of time. Yes, yes. yes. Okay. And, and finally, Pat, what are your top three tips for managing labour this spring? I do... First, uh, the first thing I would say is simplify the system so that if you're trying to manage labour on a farm, the simple system is the easier it is for everybody to understand. I think the second thing is decide who's going to do the work in advance. So have some some type of planning into who's going to do the different tasks, be it calving cows, be it recording, be it milking, um, uh, be it putting cows to grass. So give uh, consideration to that. And I'd say the third thing would be to change the practices. So that if you look at the most efficient herds, look at what practices they're doing, and that if you want to 
to ease your workload, change the practices. Pat Clark, thanks for all your tips on labour efficiency this spring. Thank you, Emma. That's it for this week's episode of The Dairy Edge. And my thanks to John Maher, Kieran Kelleher and Pat Clark for joining me on the show. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and for more information, go to the Chagas website at chagas.ie. I'm Emma-Louise Coffey and join me next time for your Dairy Edge. <laughs>